You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. All right, guys, go ahead and open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. All right, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 8 this evening. Uh, and obviously, tonight we're studying a new or beginning a new series, a study through the Gospel of Mark, and I'm really, really excited for this. Right, I'm really stoked for us to, uh, to walk through the shortest and first written Gospel. Uh, there's a lot of stuff in this book. We'll probably spend 70 or so weeks in this book. Not continuously. We'll break it up once in a while, so you'll be all right. Um, but this tends to be the most neglected of the four Gospels, so let's try and fix that. All right, starting this evening. Um, Whenever you start a new study of any book, it's always good to give a bit of a background on that book, so let's, let's do that. i got four questions I want to answer before we actually look at the text. Uh, first question is this. If we're looking at the gospel according to Mark, what is a gospel? All right, what is a gospel? Now, while there's only one gospel, there's only one message of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, uh, there is another sense in which we can use that word. Uh, gospel can refer to... Obviously, one of the four books about the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, a gospel is basically a biography of Jesus Christ, but it's not just a basic biography, right? It's a theological biography. A gospel is not just concerned with the brute historical facts about Jesus. A gospel is a written record of who Jesus is and what he did and taught, but it's also a book that points the reader to the greater truth that Jesus is Lord, that he is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God, and we must place our faith in him, right? So it's a biography, but it's not just that. It's a theological biography. And in light of that, something that you should know, uh, again, living in an age of skepticism, gospels don't necessarily go in chronological order. They don't have to. Again, not concerned with just the brute facts of history and what order the facts came in, but it's a theological biography. Uh, gospels aren't written like history books are today, right? They're ancient. Um, they're, they're not written with court order-like detail. Uh, being superintended by the Holy Spirit, the authors of these gospels sought to provide information about Jesus in a way that fit with what they wanted their readers to understand about him, right? namely that he is the Christ, the Son of God. Uh, but this doesn't mean that any of the information in the Gospels are contradictory or false. It just means that the authors recorded what they, led by the Holy Spirit, thought was most important to get the message about Jesus across to their readers. All right, so what is a Gospel? There you go. Um, question two I'd like to answer for background is who wrote the Gospel of Mark? Shocker, John Mark, right? John Mark wrote the Gospel of Mark. Uh, this is the same John Mark that we read about in Acts chapter 12, verse 12, if you want to write that down. Uh, this is the cousin of Paul's missionary companion, Barnabas. You can read that in Colossians 4.10. Um, now, his name's John Mark, but Mark is not his last name. Uh, it was his other name, right? John was probably his Jewish name, and his Latin name was Mark, kind of like how the apostle Paul was also Saul. God didn't change his name. Paul was his Gentile name, and Saul was his Jewish name. That's how John Mark works out. Mark was an incredibly common Roman name. Marcus was insanely common. It's like a son of the god of war is what that means. Ares or Mars, actually. That's why it's Mark. Sorry, Greeks and Romans just kind of stole from each other's paganism. Um, but anyhow, uh, but this Mark, John Mark, is the one who went on a missionary journey with Paul. 
But he ended up abandoning Paul halfway through. You can read about that at the end of Acts chapter 15. Um, but for whatever reason, maybe it was cowardice, probably cowardice, uh, Mark abandoned the apostle Paul on a missionary journey and ended up causing a sharp disagreement to rise between Paul and Barnabas, Mark's cousin, uh, when it was time for them to go out on another missionary journey. Right? Paul didn't want to take Mark since Mark deserted him last time. <laughs> kind of understandable. Uh, and Barnabas wanted to take Mark because it's his cousin. Uh, so they split up and they went and preached to different areas for a season. That's a fairly famous part of the book of Acts. Uh, but eventually, this is really encouraging if you have conflict that needs resolved with other Christians. Uh, eventually, Paul and Mark must have made up. Because in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, which is Paul's last letter, Paul writes this, Get Mark. <laughs> Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. So though Mark really messed up and was a failure at one point in his life, he ended up repenting and becoming useful again to the ministry of the gospel. And that should encourage all of us. God uses people who mess up. He uses sinners. He used Mark. But not only was Mark close with the Apostle Paul, Mark also became very close with the Apostle Peter. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13, Peter writes this, She who is at Babylon, which is a code way of saying the church in Rome, she who is in Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. So basically, in First Peter, he says, hey, Mark says hi, <laughs> right? Mark, my son. So before Peter, the apostle Peter, was martyred for the faith, he spent his last few years of his life in the city of Rome. And in his first letter, Peter mentions that Mark is with him, right? So Mark spent time with Peter for the last few years of Peter's life. And not only that, Peter calls Mark his son, Right? Not his biological son, but a, like a son to Peter in the faith. Mark is someone that Peter had taught deeply. He had discipled Mark, and he loved Mark a lot. Right? So Peter and Mark are like this. But Mark was not an apostle. Right? Again, we're trying to teach you a little bit about who wrote this gospel. Mark was not an apostle. Mark was not a pastor. Mark's not even mentioned in the Bible as a preacher. As far as we can tell, Mark was just an ordinary Christian. That's pretty cool. <laughs> he was just an ordinary guy, a regular Christian who sought to be useful to the church. <laughs> he sought to serve the ministry of the gospel however he could be useful. Right? Now, after the apostle Peter died in 64 AD, church history tells us that the church in Rome began to beg Mark to put down in writing the things that the apostle Peter had taught them about the life of Jesus. Right? They, they wanted something that wasn't just oral tradition. They wanted something concrete that they could read again and again, commit to memory, teach from, and learn from. So the church in Rome is telling Mark, write down what Peter always taught us about Jesus. Write down what Peter taught you about Jesus. You knew Peter better than anyone. Write down what he said. So in 65 AD, Mark wrote his gospel the year after Peter died. And what Mark wrote was what he had learned from Peter. Again, as he had spent much time with him. So Mark basically recorded what Peter had said about Jesus' earthly life and ministry. Now this doesn't do away with the inspiration of the Holy Spirit leading Mark to write what he wrote. I'm just letting you guys know humanly how we came to have the book of Mark from a human perspective. Uh, but as far as validating what I just said to you about Mark writing down what Peter had taught him, I want to read you a quote uh, from the early church father, Papias, which that's an awesome name to name your kid. Papias. Uh, the second century is when he wrote this. Um, so this would be early 100s. He said this about the Gospel of Mark. It's kind of a lengthy quote, but it's, it's good. 
Mark being the interpreter of Peter, that's important, Mark being the interpreter of Peter, whatsoever he remembered, he wrote accurately, but not, however, in the order that these things were spoke or done by our Lord, for he neither heard the Lord nor followed him. So he says Mark was not one of the original disciples. He didn't hear or follow Jesus. But afterwards, as I said, he was with Peter, who did not make a complete or ordered account of the Lord's words, but constructed his teachings according to short, self-contained teachings. So Mark did nothing wrong in writing down single matters as he remembered them, for he gave special attention to one thing, of not passing by anything he heard and not falsifying anything in these matters. And Papias said that he wrote that, being told that by John the Apostle, is what Papias claimed, is that John told him, Mark wrote down what Peter told him, and this is good. All right, so Papias wrote that in the early 2nd century, and if I could sum all that up, it's Mark wrote what he remembered Peter saying. Mark wasn't lying or making anything up. Mark wrote down what Peter said about Jesus. And what Papias said in the second century was disputed by nobody. <laughs> no one in the church ever disputed that Mark wrote the gospel of Mark. Everyone was in agreement. After spending time with Peter, John Mark wrote this gospel. And the church universally accepted Mark's writings as scripture. Right? There was never any dispute whatsoever about this gospel. In fact, all your ancient New Testament books, uh, or rather list of New Testament books, can canonical lists, and many manuscripts of the gospel of Mark actually start with the words kata markon, which is Greek for according to Mark. Right? So again, Mark wrote this gospel. Just wanted to make that abundantly clear. Sometimes people will debate about that. Conservative scholarship tells us Mark indeed wrote this book. Third question, the next two aren't going to be nearly as long. Who is this gospel written for? Who is the original audience? Well, as we said earlier, the church in Rome asked Mark to write down what Peter said. So Mark wrote primarily with an eye toward the church in Rome. He wrote with an eye towards Gentiles, particularly Roman Gentiles, who would not have been very familiar with Jewish culture in the Old Testament. All right? So this is a really handy introductory uh, book to who Jesus is. It's for people who don't know anything about Jews right? or Jewish history or the Old Testament. And we actually see some internal evidence that this book was written for Gentiles uh, in the book of Mark. Uh, the first piece of evidence for that is there is no genealogy. I don't know if you ever thought about that. Mark has no genealogy. Why? Because most Gentiles would not have understood the significance of a Jewish genealogy. Matthew wrote to Jews, so he starts out with this big, long family list that leads us to Jesus. Mark knows his people he's aiming for aren't going to understand it, so Mark doesn't record one. A second thing is some of the Greek in Mark's gospel is actually Latinized. So people who read Greek, not me, because I, I don't, uh, but people who can read Greek uh, can tell that this, was that this book was written for people who understood Latin better than they understood Greek. A third piece of evidence is this was written for Gentiles was the reckoning for time that Mark used in this book. Mark's time is Jewish, a Jewish understanding, or a, rather a Roman understanding of time instead of a Jewish understanding in time. Uh, which is why, if you ever meet an atheist, just throwing this out there, this is why there seem to be time differences between Mark and Matthew. Matthew's writing from a Jewish perspective and Mark's writing from a Gentile perspective on time. And a fourth piece of evidence that this was written for Gentiles is that there are many explanations of Aramaic words and Jewish customs in this book so that Gentiles can understand their significance. He'll say something in Aramaic and then say, that is, and then give it to him to explain what that word means or a Jewish custom. So this gospel, unlike Matthew, was written for people like us, 
right? It was written for Gentiles, particularly Roman Gentiles, and that's going to be important for us in this sermon and in some others. And then lastly, what are the themes of this book? Right now, while there's many smaller themes, this gospel is primarily concerned with answering two questions for its readers, and they're very simple. The first is this, who is Jesus? <laughs> what did he do? Why did he do it? What was his mission? Who is Jesus really? And the second theme to this book seeks to answer the question, what does it mean to be a disciple? Right? What should the people of God expect as we walk in line with who Jesus is? This book has an evangelistic bent on the one hand. It wants its readers to come out of it knowing that Jesus is the Messiah and Son of God and then respond to that message in faith. But on the other hand, this book is also meant to be an encouragement to Christians. Mark wants you to know Christ is king. He's writing to Christians who are being persecuted. That would have been his first audience. Christ is king. Your life as a disciple is going to be one of service and rejection and hardship, just like Jesus. But just as the Father was pleased with Christ and accepted him, so God also accepts you in Christ. Now, there's a lot more to be said about the background of this book. I spent 13 minutes giving you some background. But I think we've covered enough to get us a good look of what it is that we're getting into. Right, but Mark starts off his gospel with a bang, and he gets right into it, and he doesn't waste time. So let's just dig into it. Right? But keep in mind one thing. Mark wants us to see who Jesus is. So over the next three weeks, as we look at the prologue of this gospel, which is chapter 1, verses 1 through 15, Mark gives us a heavenly vantage point so that we can see very early on exactly who Jesus is. We're going to get information in the beginning of this book that's going to collar the rest of our reading of the book. And that information is that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is God come in flesh. All right, so let's go ahead and read Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. Verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is God's word. Let's pray. Almighty God, in you are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Please, sovereign Lord, open our eyes that we might see the wonders of your word. And God, please give us grace that we can clearly understand and freely choose the way of your wisdom. We pray this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. All right, so the verse 1, we're going to do what we always do, ladies and gentlemen. We're going to walk through these passages verse by verse. Verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So Mark starts off his gospel with an explosion, right? You want to know who Jesus is? I'll tell you who he is in the first sentence, right? He immediately starts off with this huge revelation about who Jesus is. First, he is the Christ, right? 
Now, Christ isn't his last name. I hope you all know that by now, especially if you've been here for a while. Christ is his title, right? It means Messiah, the anointed one. Jesus is the anointed one, the chosen one of God. He's the one who has been promised by God through all of the Old Testament prophets, right? He's the one who is going to save and redeem the people of God. Jesus is the Savior, chosen by God, sent into the world to save his people from their sins by his own living, suffering, and dying in place for their sins. And we get that from Isaiah 53 and other passages. But again, Isaiah 53, speaking of the Messiah, the Christ, the Anointed One, that he would come and be punished in our place. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement that brought us peace was laid upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. It was Yahweh's good plan to crush him and put him to grief. We thought that God was punishing him for his sins, but he was being punished for our sins. And he was numbered amongst the transgressors, right, in order to save them. We get all this. He is the one that Isaiah was talking about. He's the Christ, the servant, the anointed one, the chosen one. He's the one that everyone's been waiting for. The one who is the Davidic king that God promised David, I will give you a son and he will sit on your throne forever. The scepter will not depart from Judah, will not depart from this king. Jesus is the one who's going to rule the people of God for eternity. He's the one before whom all men will one day kneel and confess that he is God. He's the one who's going to bring to pass all of the promises of God for his people, the fulfillment of everything that's been promised. He is the Christ. Not only that, but he is the Son of God. Another title for him. The Son of God. This title tells us that He is divine. That He shares the same essence with the Father. He is God. He has the divine essence in and of Himself. The second person of the Trinity. Again, He is God made flesh. He's the one who is co-equal with the Father. Co-eternal. Co-equal in power and might and majesty and divinity. The only begotten Son of God. The unique one. The monogenes. The unique one of God. That there is no other. No one like him, the Son of God, has a special relationship to God the Father that no one else can have. He is the Christ, the Son of God. But Mark also says that this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which means the gospel about Jesus Christ. But that word gospel, let's think about that for a second. In Christianity, the word gospel has come to mean the message of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Right? And that's not wrong, right? I'm not a, like, don't, don't worry, don't fire me. Right? That, that's not wrong. That's true. But that word gospel, euangelion, also has a broad meaning. You guys already know it. It means good news or glad tidings. Right? And that word gospel, believe it or not, me and Pastor Steve were talking about this, that word gospel is not unique to the Bible. Maybe you didn't know that. That word was used outside of the Bible, in writings found outside of Scripture. Usually that word gospel was used in the Roman Empire. Keep in mind Mark's audience, Gentiles in the Roman Empire. Usually that word gospel was used in the Roman Empire to announce the birth of a Caesar. Good news. A king has been born. A king has come. Or it was used to announce the birth or to announce a big victory or the end of a war. Right? Heralds, messengers, would be sent out to cities with a message. Gospel, I'm bringing you good news. I'm bringing you glad tidings. The king has come. The king has been born. Or good news, we have won victory over our enemies. 
But whenever a messenger, whenever a herald came to give euangelion, came to give gospel, it was a huge deal. If I could sum it up for you, whenever a messenger came bearing good news, they came to tell you that something monumental had just happened. Something has just happened that's going to change human history and nothing's going to be the same again. That's what a messenger came whenever they came declaring gospel. So it's as if Mark starts off this first verse with this. What you are reading is of monumental importance. It is a message of universal importance. Nothing will ever be the same again. A king has come and a victory has been won. Good news has come to the world and this good news is centers on and is about Jesus who is the Messiah, the Son of God. Mark starts off this gospel with an explosion of information that should make us excited. Something has happened, ladies and gentlemen. Something has happened. But Mark says that this is the beginning of the good news. The beginning of the good news that changes everything. So how does this good news about Jesus start? How does it start? We find our answer in the rest of the passage. It starts with a messenger. It starts with a herald of good news. Verses 2 and 3. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Now, real quick, before we actually dive into what those verses are saying, I want, again, I'm trying to prepare you guys, I guess, to get into some apologetic endeavors, or if you ever hear someone, an, uh, an, an unbeliever, uh, gainsaying against the word of God, uh, I want you to know this. Mark says that that quote is from Isaiah. It's actually a quote from Malachi 3.1 and Isaiah 40, verse 3. Verse 2 is from Malachi 3, and verse 3 is from Isaiah chapter 40. But that doesn't mean that Mark got it wrong. I want to make something clear. It was actually fairly common back then to quote two sources that spoke about the same topic, because they're both speaking of the messenger who's going to come before the Messiah comes. It was very common to speak or to quote two different sources talking about the same thing, but then attribute that quote to the most famous of the two sources. All right, to sandwich something together and then attribute it to the famous one. And Isaiah is the most famous Old Testament prophetic book about the Messiah. Right, so Mark knew by inspiration of the Holy Spirit that both passages are speaking of the same messenger and the same message that he would preach. But he knows Isaiah is the most famous prophet, so he attributes the quote to Isaiah. And furthermore, some other manuscripts just say, as it is written in the prophets, and don't mention Isaiah. But I just wanted to go ahead and tell you that since our translation says, mentions Isaiah there. But what do the prophets say, more importantly? What do the prophets say? They say that before Messiah comes, God's going to send a messenger before him. We see that in verse 2. Behold, I will send a messenger before your face to prepare your way. It's as if God the Father is speaking to Jesus Christ saying, I'm sending your messenger. Someone's going to come before you. So God promises there's going to be a prophet come and preach to the people, a messenger, a divinely sent messenger. And that prophet's going to be forerunner to the Messiah. He's going to come immediately and prepare the way for the Christ. And prepare the way, if you ever wonder what that meant, means to announce. Just to announce the imminent coming of Messiah. To call the people to turn back to God because God is about to fulfill his promises to send the Savior. So again, keep in mind, from a Gentile Roman perspective, just like an earthly king would have heralds and messengers go out before him to announce that he's coming, so also would the king of kings the Messiah, have a messenger go out and announce that he is on his way. Beautiful thought. The king of kings is coming. 
And this messenger would be found where? The voice crying in the wilderness. He'd be found in the wilderness, and he would be preaching, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now that quote is taken from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. And I would recommend you in your private reading to go and read Isaiah chapter 40. I think particularly verses 1 through 7 um, is, the, is the full context. But it's really interesting what's being said when you look at Isaiah 40. But for the sake of time, I won't read it to you. I'll summarize it. In Isaiah 40, God is comforting his people who, who are in exile. And he starts out in verse 1, comfort, comfort my people. Right, so God is announcing something good to his people who are in exile. And he goes on to tell them, I have pardoned your iniquities. I have forgiven your sins. Be comforted. I am about to bring you out of exile, and I'm coming to do it myself. And all flesh will behold my glory. Right, so that's the context that this prepare the way of the Lord is being, is being quoted in. That verse quoted, prepare the way of the Lord, is actually in Hebrew, prepare the way for Yahweh. Right? That's God's name, prepare the way for Yahweh. So the prophesied messenger is going to be in the wilderness proclaiming, make yourselves ready. God himself is coming. And he's bringing us forgiveness. He's bringing forgiveness for us. And there's going to be a new beginning for the people of God. And everyone is going to behold His glory. God is about to fulfill His promise to send a Redeemer. What a thought that Yahweh is coming. And He doesn't come in wrath. He comes, comfort, comfort my people. Your sins are pardoned. You're forgiven. I'm coming to bring you out. He's coming to bring us out of spiritual exile. And forgive our sins. And this is all spoken of our Savior, obviously, the Lord Jesus Christ. And nothing could be more accurate. Is he not the Savior of his people? Indeed, he came and brought us out of our exile, just as we looked last week. And the Lord God, or God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Just as God brought us out of our spiritual Egypt, we see Christ is going to bring us out of our spiritual exile. Is that not the gospel? Is that not good news for us? Indeed, he has accomplished the forgiveness of our sins. He's taken us who were far from God in exile and brought us to the Father's side. This is beautiful. Promised long before he came through the prophet Isaiah. But the promises of God are always sure to come to pass. We know how this story ends, I hope. That Messiah comes. But now we come on to the fulfillment of this prophesied messenger, this prophesied prophet. The messenger is promised, and now we read in verse 4, John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So just as the prophets had promised, John appeared. Do you, do you realize how monumental that that was? We're so, we're so familiar with the story. Well, of course, John comes. <laughs> Jesus' cousin, John, he comes preaching, Right? We take that for granted, but if you were a Jew back then and you knew your Old Testament, this was huge. This was absolutely astounding. This is God's prophesied signal that the kingdom of God is at hand. Right? John is God's signal that the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises about the Messiah are right about to happen. He is the signal. He's the herald. He's the one who comes immediately before the Messiah comes. He's the forerunner. 
The redemption of the, of the people of God is about to happen. That's why Mark says this is the beginning of the gospel. This is the beginning of the good news. Right before Messiah comes to bring in the kingdom, here's John. John is the signal that Yahweh is coming. Even in the Gospel of Matthew, in chapter 3, verse 10, we read John saying, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. And what that means is there's no more waiting. The axe is coming to hit the root of the trees. There's no more waiting. God is finally doing what he's promised. The time has come. Messiah is coming. But I want you to notice something. I don't want us to skip over this. John is where? He's in the wilderness. And that is really significant. This is super significant. There's a wilderness theme of sorts in the Bible that I, I don't want you to be unaware of. Right? This really blessed me in my study. I, I thought you guys would think this is great. John's in the wilderness preaching Messiah is coming and things are going to change. And in the Bible, the wilderness is where new beginnings happen. It's where covenants are made or where covenants are renewed. Right? Whenever God led Israel out of Egypt, he led them to the wilderness. He led them to Mount Sinai. And in the wilderness, he gave them the law. And he formally established the old covenant with them. All right, now, Elijah, another example, at Mount Carmel, which is in the wilderness, renewed the old covenant after his run-in with the prophets of Baal. Right? The wilderness is a place of covenant. The wilderness is a place of beginning. So it is not by accident that it was prophesied that a voice would cry out in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. It's not an accident that John is preaching about the Messiah in the wilderness. John was preparing the people of God for a new covenant. <laughs> he was preparing them for a new covenant. And that's exactly what was coming in the Lord Jesus. The new covenant. The covenant of grace was coming. The covenant that had been promised since Genesis 3 and had been foreshadowed by all the other Old Testament covenants and priesthoods and prophets was finally coming to pass. So though all people have always been saved by Jesus in the new covenant of grace, it was about to be formally ratified in the blood of Christ. It was about to formally, finally come. There was a new beginning about to happen for God's people. A new covenant, a better covenant, established on better promises with a better mediator, was about to happen. And that's why John's out in the wilderness preaching. John's out there in the wilderness compelling people to join him in repentance and celebration for what God was about to do among his people. I want you to see again, God is keeping his promises. He's keeping his promises. This really is good news. And sometimes we don't see that as part of the gospel, do we? Like we sometimes we so narrow the gospel down to where it's just about me not going to hell. Right? And that's a beautiful, awesome part of the gospel. But we forget that part of good news is that God is faithful to do everything that he has promised he will do. He promised a forerunner. He sent John. He promised the Christ. He sent Jesus. He promised us a salvation. Christ lives and dies and is raised from the dead. Part of the gospel is that our God is a faithful God. His promises to you, Christian, are more certain than the sun rising in the morning. God is faithful, so I don't know what you might be dealing with right now. I don't know where you're at in your life personally, but just a quick point of application that we're going to hit again at the end. You can trust him. He's never lied. Everything he's ever promised, he's done. And if he's not done it yet, then it's certain to happen based on his past faithfulness. He will be faithful to you, Christian. You can trust him. He will save you from your sins. He will be God to you. He will see you through the trials of life. He will indeed do everything that he says. This is good news for us. 
God is faithful to his word. But John's out in the wilderness, and he's calling people to repent. Right? And he's, he's telling them to prepare themselves for Messiah's coming. Now, contextually, Israel had basically fallen into apostasy for the most part. Right? The, the religious leaders were mainly corrupted. Right? The high priest was certainly as corrupt as you could possibly be. The Pharisees ruled the day and added their traditions to the law of God. Jesus eventually himself says, you have God's name on your lips, but your heart's far from him. There are very few true believers left in Israel. And we'll see that in how Jesus is rejected through most of his ministry and how the crowds cry out, crucify him. There are few actual believers left. So John is out in the wilderness preaching and telling people to repent. Repent of their sins. He's calling them to turn their hearts back to God, to trust in him, believe his promises, and then reform their lives in keeping with their repentance. That's why he says bear fruit in keeping with repentance. He says that in Matthew 3, John the Baptist does. The people of Israel in general needed a heart transformation. They needed to turn back to God and be forgiven for their sins, and that's what John was telling them to do. He was saying repent and prepare for the coming king. Turn your hearts back to God so that you'll be forgiven and be part of the kingdom that Messiah is bringing you. He's calling them to repentance. And those who repented and confessed their sins were baptized by John. Now this would have been a really, really weird thing for the Jews. Right? Baptism was not really part of Judaism. Right? Baptist, it was so weird that John was baptizing people that they gave him the name The Baptist. Right, or the baptizer, if we're going to be honest. Right? How cool would that be if our actual group was mentioned in the Bible, like the Baptists? But anyway, he's John the baptizer. That's really weird for Jews that they would be baptizing. But there, were, there was one baptism ritual for Gentiles who converted to Judaism. Right? It symbolized their being cleansed by God from their old lives and making a clean break with their paganism and starting again as the people of God. But Jews didn't receive baptism. Like You just didn't do that. Jews were part of God's people by nature of their birth, according to the Old Covenant. So the fact that John was out telling both Jews and Gentiles that they needed to repent and to be baptized would have been incredibly offensive to many Jews in that day. John was essentially saying, you're all sinful. There is no distinction. You're not any better than the Gentiles. All of us must repent and turn back to God. All of us must make a break with sinful living and make ourselves ready for the Messiah. Being born to Jewish parents wasn't going to save them. He's telling them God is just and he only forgives the repentant. So repent and live. Prepare yourself. But why did John baptize? We'll get into this more next week, I'm sure. But John's baptism was symbolic of the forgiveness that the people needed. In their baptism, the people were symbolically saying, I need to be forgiven by God. I need a new heart. I'm a sinner, and I'm repentant. John gave them a symbol that fit their confession. Right? He gave them a symbol that, can fit, that fit their confession of repentance. It was just an outward ritual, right? similar to our baptism. I would say our baptism is more significant, but it was similar. But just like our baptism, John's baptism didn't save them. Right? John wasn't teaching baptismal regeneration like the Catholics. Right? They still had to repent and turn to God in faith, just like we do. The baptism that John gave them was a foreshadowing of something greater that was to come. It was an outward expression of what the people needed to happen internally. They needed spiritual renewal 
And that's what bab their baptism or the baptism of John pointed them to. You need something greater than this. You need an internal spiritual renewal. Verse 5. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. This part of the text probably seems strange to most of us. Right? Like Mark decides to describe John, but he only tells us what John wears, where he lives, and what he eats. It's usually not how you describe somebody. Right? What's Farhad like? Well, he lives in my house, loves spicy food, likes to wear nice clothes. I don't know what else to tell you about the guy. Right? Like it's kind of a funny way to describe somebody. And that may seem strange for us until that we realize all of the things said about John tell us that he's a prophet. This blew me open. Like this blew my mind. His clothing made out of camel's hair is meant to remind us of Elijah, the prophet. Because the Old Testament says that before Messiah comes in Malachi chapter 4, there's going to be a prophet come in the spirit of Elijah. Elijah would come. 2 Kings, I believe it's 2 Kings chapter 1 verse 8 says, He wore, Elijah, he wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. That's what John was wearing. Right? Elijah kind of set the fashion trends for prophets. <laughs> right? Like wearing harsh, fairly uncomfortable garments made out of animal hair with a leather belt around your waist kind of became like the uniform for a prophet. Right? And this is actually why Jesus says, beware of wolves in sheep's clothing. He's not talking about a wolf that pretends to be a sheep. He's talking about false prophets who dress up like true prophets. Not a wolf pretending to be a sheep, but a false prophet dressing up and acting as if he's an actual prophet of God. Beware of those people. So again, John's wearing the uniform of a prophet. So he dresses like a prophet, and he preached in the wilderness. And the wilderness is generally where prophets did their work. His diet was simple and humble like a prophet, and also in line with the cleanliness laws of the Old Testament. Not living an extravagant life, but a very plain life. He called the people to repent like a prophet. All of the details about John are meant to show us that he is a prophet, a humble, plain man that speaks on behalf of God. Everything about John was distinct. He wasn't like other people. He was a set-apart prophet for Yahweh. In other words, Mark wants us to take very seriously whatever it is that this prophet says. If a prophet speaks, he's been sent from Yahweh. He's been sent by God. You better listen. He's a mouthpiece for the Most High. You need to heed his words because they're the words of the living God. And this one says Messiah is coming. He ought to be listened to. He's not crazy. He's a prophet. But John's causing quite a stir with his prophetic ministry, right? Verse 5 says people are coming out in droves to hear him. All of Jerusalem and all of Judea were coming out to hear him. And that's hyperbole, right? Not literally every man, woman, and child in Judea and Jerusalem were coming out to the Jordan River, but a ton of them were, right? So that's a hyperbolic statement, but you guys get the point. He's getting a lot of attention. A lot of people were coming to him. He actually, we read in some of the other Gospels, that he has disciples who followed him and who were taught by him, right? But here's what's wild. John, the prophet, getting a lot of attention, but he doesn't want it. He doesn't want the attention. John knew his place in the economy of God. He knew his place. John knew he's just a messenger. 
John didn't want glory. John knows that he is not the Christ. John knows that he is not the one that this gospel, this good news is about. John doesn't want the attention. He wants people to focus on Messiah. So he says this, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. That's a huge statement. John, a holy man, a prophet, says that he is nothing compared to the one who comes. He's less than nothing compared to the Lord Jesus. A prophet says this, guys. Though he didn't know that it would be Jesus, John revered the Lord Jesus above everyone else. When John thought about Jesus, he immediately abased himself and counted himself as less than nothing. The one who comes after me is mightier than I. To untie someone's shoes. Think about this with me. It's all good back there. (laughs) To untie someone's shoes was a slave's job. Listen to me, this is super important. It's all good. I love you, Janet. Everyone turn and laugh at Janet for a second. (laughs) Tim Keller might be smarter than me, but he will not preach a better gospel than me, ladies and gentlemen. But whenever John thought about Jesus, He immediately abased himself and counted himself as less than nothing, right? He says, I am not worthy to stoop down and untie his shoes. This this was the most riveting thing for me to learn this week studying this passage. To untie someone's shoes was the job of a slave, but not just any ordinary slave. If you were the slave that untied your master's sandals, you were absolute scum. You were the lowest slave that that master had. You were the lowest of the low. There's actually a rabbinic tradition. This isn't in the Bible, but a rabbinic tradition that said that Jewish slaves were not to be made to untie or carry their master's sandals. It was too low and degrading of a job for even a slave to take off someone else's sandals. Jewish slaves weren't supposed to do it. And yet here, John says that Jesus is so much mightier and greater than he is that John is not worthy of doing that job. John is not even worthy to get on his knees and be the most lowly of no account slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. John is not worthy to serve him. He's not worthy to be a servant. I hope you guys can see what John is saying about Jesus. He is no ordinary man. He is no mere prophet. He is no mere king. He is unlike anyone that you have ever heard of or seen before. John, a prophet who would not have counted any man as special. Consider, John calls out religious leaders, priests, common people, kings. He doesn't care. But then whenever he thinks of the Messiah, when he thinks of Jesus, he says, he is mightier than I, and I am not worthy to do for him the work of a slave. I'm literally not worthy to serve him. 
And who could be higher than a prophet? I would argue that only God is mightier than a prophet sent by God. The one who comes after John is not an ordinary man. He's the son of God. He is the lamb of God come to take away the sins of the world. He is the Christ, the Messiah, the chosen one of God come to the world. He is the great prophet, the great priest, and the great king of his people. He's the savior and redeemer of the people of God. He is God come in the flesh. He is, as Mark says in verse 1, Jesus Christ, the son of God. This ought to move you to worship. To fall on your face and consider who it is that we are in relationship to. Who it is that we sing praises to. Who it is that we're reading about. There is not a more accurate summary of who Jesus is than what John just said. He is the Holy One. He is the Mighty One. He is the Supreme One. We are not worthy to approach Him. We are not worthy to be saved by Him. He is not like us. He is God. But indeed, He has come. And here's the great reversal of things. Though we are not worthy to serve Him, He has served us. We're not worthy to stoop down and untie his sandals. And the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You're not worthy to to carry his shoes. And he died for you. What kind of Savior is this? What kind of God is this? That he would serve those who are not worthy to serve him. Truly, the song is right that we're going to sing here in a little bit. Hallelujah, what a Savior. There's none like him. But John then says one last thing about Jesus that declares the supremacy of Christ over John. He says, I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Simply put, John is confessing that what he did in baptism was give a symbol of the need for repentance to give a symbol for the for need of forgiveness of sins, to give a, a symbol for the need of a new heart. But that's all John himself can do. John can only administer an outward symbol. He cannot actually give what it represents. He is not the Messiah. He can only do so much. All John is is a messenger. All John can do is point to the Messiah. But Jesus, Jesus will give you the reality of the symbol. I baptize you in water. He baptizes you with the Holy Spirit. John can only put you in water, but Jesus can transform you internally. John can only call people to repent, but Jesus can actually grant you repentance. John can only tell people, you need your sins forgiven, but only Jesus can actually grant you the forgiveness of sins. Only Jesus can send his Holy Spirit and give you new life. Only he can give you the new birth by sending his spirit to you. He can actually bring you cleansing and renewal and spiritual rebirth. And only God can give the Holy Spirit. John says he will give it to all who come to him. That Christ will. John is the shadow. Jesus is the substance. Look to him and put your trust in him. But real quick, three points of application very quickly. The first is this. I want you guys to know that you can trust God. 
you can trust God. He promised the forerunner, and he sent John. And we know how the story ends. Our God and Father sent the promised Messiah. He sent the Lord Jesus to save us from our sins as he had promised. So as I said earlier, if you're here this evening and you're wondering if God will indeed be all to you that he promises, will he be sufficient for you in the midst of your need? Will he comfort you in all of your sorrows? Will he give you strength to face whatever trial might be looming in the distance? Will he give you the grace to to, to get past whatever may have happened in your past? Will he help you? Will he see you through your difficulties? Will he preserve you? Will he save your soul and bring you to heaven with him? If you're wondering, can I trust God? I want you to look to the Messiah who has come into the world and see that God is faithful. He promises you those things. He will do it. He's not a man that he would lie, nor a son of man that he changes his mind. Has he not spoken and will he not do it? You can trust him. There will not be a single promise of God that he will not fulfill. And Christian, you have been united to Christ. And as Paul tells us, all of the promises of God are yes and amen in him. The promises are yours. Second point, consider the amount of reverence and respect that John had for Jesus. He counted Christ as supreme. And that he wasn't even worthy to serve him. What about you? What about you? Do you count Christ as holy in your heart? Right? Like I know our external forms here at church have over the course of time become more and more reverent, but what about your attitude toward the Lord Jesus? Do you revere him in your heart as holy? I think sometimes we give an outward showing of respect, but inside we have become so comfortable with the idea of Jesus that we treat him as something common. Right? And shame on us for doing so. John said he wasn't worthy to be Jesus' most low-level slave. Can you say amen to John? I'm not worthy to serve him. Can you say amen to John? I'm not worthy of being a Christian. Or do you think that Jesus owes you something? Do you think that you actually deserve to be a Christian? Do you think that you actually deserve the salvation that Christ has brought to you? Or do you abase yourself with John and say, I'm not worthy of carrying his shoes? If your heart doesn't beat with John in humility, submission, and reverence for Christ, then you need to repent. Consider who Jesus is and the forgiveness of God that's offered to you. Repent and view Christ as John viewed him. And lastly, we ought to rejoice. I love telling you guys that this is an application. Rejoice. The Bible doesn't always tell you to do something. Sometimes the Bible says, believe something and be joyous over it. Right? Rejoice. Though, like John, we aren't worthy to be servants to the Lord Jesus. God has granted us the gift of faith so that we indeed have become slaves to Christ Jesus. You should rejoice in that. Should you be a Christian? No. There's nothing in you. You're not worthy of it. Forget all the junk you see online all the time. You're worthy. No, you're not. But God has made you a slave of him anyway. By grace. You should rejoice. 
that God has united you to Christ. And not only slaves, but God has allowed us to become children of God through Christ. John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. But to all who believed on him and did receive him, he gave them the right to become children of God. Not only slaves, but a son. So though we are unworthy sinners, God has blessed us with grace upon grace and called us to his son. He's united us with him, given us every spiritual blessing with him. So we ought to rejoice in the kindness of our God and the salvation that he has brought us in Jesus Christ our Lord. This should make you smile. This should comfort you no matter how hard things are. I am not worthy to untie his sandals, but not only am I a slave to him by God's grace, but I'm a son of God through him. We're unworthy, but the one who is worthy has served us and saved us in spite of us. So may we praise him and serve him in joy and in reverence and in gratitude. Let's pray. Our great God and Father, we thank you for fulfilling your promises of sending your son to live and die and be resurrected on our behalf. We praise you for this good news that we have received, that John was a herald of, that we are now heralds of, Christ has come and he saved his people. God, I pray you'd grant us humility that we would think of ourselves like John thought of himself. That you'd grant us faith to believe that your promises are true and that you'll be faithful to us as you were to every other promise you've ever made. Lord, I pray that you'd give us hearts full of joy as we consider the great grace that you've extended to us. Your sovereign grace. You've chosen people are absolutely unworthy to know you through your son. We rejoice in that and we praise your name. We pray all this in the name of the one that we've just spent all this time thinking about, the Christ, the Son of God, our Lord Jesus. Amen.